0: Welcome to the new episode of In Love With The Process. I am your host, Mike Petchy, and it's Halloween, my favorite holiday of the year, during the best season to be living in New England. Colored leaves, apple picking, witch hunts, Puritan laws, you know, the good stuff. (laughs) Uh, It's no surprise that I love making horror movies uh, because of where I live. Uh, And this week, my latest film, Who's There?, uh, just had the official trailer released by bloodydisgusting.com. Uh, those guys are awesome, awesome website. Uh, and it's super cool that they agreed to put the trailer out for us. Um, so if you haven't seen it yet, make sure that you either head over to mikepecci.com. I'll try to put it up there. Or right now, it's on my Instagram page, at mikepecci. So go follow me on Instagram, at mikepecci.com. There you will find the link in my bio. And I will say this, if you watch it and you love it, then share it. Uh, The internet is a powerful place uh, and folks that finance features, watch and take note of the stuff that fans like. Uh, So if you dig it, grab a screenshot of the poster, write to me and ask for the poster, steal it offline, repost it and tag at Mike Petchy and uh, brag that you are one of the few who have seen this trailer and you saw it first. Uh, speaking of the poster, what did you guys think of it? Uh, it's, uh, I've always been a massive fan of illustrated posters and I wanted to make sure I was doing one again for this new film. Ever since I was a kid, I saw the posters for Road Warrior, Indiana Jones, Nightmare on Elm Street... These posters just open my imagination as a storyteller. These posters always come to mind when I'm coming up with new ideas. Somehow I'm always thinking of what the poster looks like first. And I think that's because of those days in the video store. Passing by that horror section that I was not allowed to rent from as a kid and just getting a glimpse into this... uh, unaccessible world to me through these posters, like that Nightmare on Elm Street poster, Nightmare on Elm Street 2 poster with the kid in front of the mirror and the weird like hawk thing behind him. It was like, what the fuck is this movie about? Uh, And I love that about movie posters. Movie posters have this ability to take uh, whatever world that I was able to afford to shoot on film and just blow it the fuck up because the restrictions are just in the imagination alone. Uh, movie posters do such a great job at building and setting the tone for a film. Uh, and if they're done right, uh, then it will actually change the way the person watches the movie. So I knew that for Who's There, it was a really important thing for me to do a really great illustrated poster. I don't know uh, when it happened, but at some point, I think during the early 90s and the rise of Photoshop, a lot of the movie studios decided it was more important to have photos of their lead actors on a poster. So you'd get like these really badly photoshopped comps of headshots of actors sort of slammed up against each other and you know, maybe there was some sort of lens flare and they're just sort of put over whatever font for the title was there. The stuff was really, really boring. Um, And posters sucked for a long time. Uh, then came along movie fans like the dudes over at Alamo Draft House and Mondo. And these guys were doing screenings of old films. And they contracted amazing artists to come in and reimagine a brand new poster for some of the classics. Um, and if you don't know what Mondo is, do yourself a favor. Go on Google and do a quick Google search for Mondo and look at the art. I mean, these guys do like really limited edition... Uh, uh, presses of these posters that are very expensive um, because they're collector's items. Um, And just the imagination that these artists have in rethinking how to market uh, a movie that we've seen and that we love. Um, Some of my favorites are like the Thing poster from Mondo, uh, the amazing alien posters that they've done from Mondo. Uh, Go look it up, man. Definitely look it up. So because I love movie posters, and of course I wanted to get a good illustrated one for all of my films, um, and I started this years ago with my Grindhouse DVD series, and I hooked up with an amazing artist, um, Yasmin, I think her last name is Putri. I've never asked her in real life because we've only communicated through the internet, which by the way, the internet is a great fucking place when you want to reach out to artists, and uh, I haven't written this for my intro, but I'm just going to go on a side tangent here. Um, if you've got a great project and you've got a really good idea, um, look up the artist that you really respect. If you want to make a good poster for your film, go find the artists that make the posters that you like and write them an email. The cool thing about artists is that they usually aren't rep. They don't have agents or management. Most of the time they don't have that. Um, and they're very accessible. And so if you've got a great idea, if you've got a great project, if you're a cool person, uh, these guys get back to you. And when they do get back to you, they often want to be involved with the project, if they believe in it. So yeah, like what I was saying before, I hooked up with this artist, Yasmin Putri years before she became one of the top artists at Marvel. Uh, She ended up going on after she did the work for me, uh, like about a year, a few years later, and she became like one of the hottest cover artists at Marvel. Uh, which is so cool. I'm so proud of her, and I'm so proud of the work that she's done. Um, and then I also started uh, a private film club here, very inspired by what uh, the dudes from Alamo Drafthouse were doing, and I wanted to do it on a smaller, local scale. And so uh, me and Tony started up uh, what we called subcult called cinema, where uh, we would go and rent one of the local theaters here, and screen our favorite movies we were kids so like we would screen Die Hard, we screened Lethal Weapon, we screened Predator um, and I just reached out to a bunch of artists that I really admired and asked them if they wanted to create posters. um, Stuff that we wouldn't sell but it was just stuff that we would hand out to the audience members that showed up to our screenings and one of my favorites still, and I'm looking at it right now, is an amazing Lethal Weapon poster uh, for the Weapon 2 actually that uh, my buddy Derek Ring did which <laughs> is this really cool illustration of the back of a toilet and a bomb in the foreground uh, with the uh, boom you're dead written on the toilet paper next to it <laughs> it's such a nerdy poster and I fucking love it and I have it full size here in my house and I'm the only one that has it <laughs> so you can tell what a nerd I am for illustrated art so back into this year, back into what I'm doing for who's there. I knew that I wanted an illustrator poster for this and I needed something really special. Um, something more than just vector art and something that really caught the eye of my Instagram fans. Um, and now I mentioned earlier that I like to pick up these Arrow Blu-ray DVDs from, a K- uh, from now and then. Um, so I mentioned earlier that I like to pick up these Arrow Blu-ray DVDs and I had picked one up called Rage of Honor, strictly because the cover was awesome. Uh, The film turned out to be okay, you know, but uh, that is the power of this cover. I couldn't get it out of my mind. So I did a little digging and I found out that this dude, Matt Griffin, had drawn it. Um, And uh, going through his portfolio, I found countless images that I had already randomly liked on Instagram. I mean, his work with neon colors is amazing, his layouts were strong and simple. And so I knew I needed this guy. So I dropped him an email, and that's exactly how the creation of the Who's There poster and my relationship with today's guest began. Matt Griffin is a graphic designer and illustrator, an all-around cool guy from Ireland. Uh, And on today's episode, we talk about our love for illustrated movie posters, uh, how his career changed drastically from video production to becoming a full-time artist, um, and he gives great advice on how to stay motivated, stay inspired, and be a smart freelancer. Um, so, if you're at home and you're feeling a bit lost and you don't have any new ideas and you're thinking about maybe getting out of the business, then do yourself a favor. Dig into that Halloween candy that you're supposed to be giving out to the kids, uh, throw in a set of those noise canceling headphones, sit back and enjoy the new episode of In Love with the Process. Hey, Matt, thanks for joining me on the show. How
1: are you? I'm great, thanks, Mike, and thanks for having me on. Delighted to be here. And congrats on, the, on who's there and all the excitement building for it.
0: Hey, man, congrats to you, too. Like, uh, I really couldn't get as much uh, attention online without that amazing poster work that you did for me.
1: Well, wow. it, it's actually uh, it's one of my favorites, I have to say, of my own uh, things I've done. I think we, we achieved what we wanted to achieve with the kind of uh, that aesthetic that runs through the the film, too. What is it that uh, Bloody Disgusting called it? Fear Soaked in Neon. I thought that was brilliant. <laughs> <Like>, that's just... <laughs> that's awesome.
0: Yeah, dude, I was super excited about that. And then uh, everybody that I've shown it to uh, through the pitches and everything, people are just really captivated by the poster and they love... The art for it and um you know we it was kind of ballsy to go the purple pink route uh and it's been paying off pretty well i think so
1: yeah yeah oh it's just it's um it's that kind of nod to the poltergeist and the the neon and stuff it's just you can't go wrong with uh glowing pink fog and the glowing triangle i think <laughs> you're always going to win there <laughs>
0: Well, uh, so I'd love to get real nerdy with you about movie posters. Um, I said this during the intro. I am a a huge illustrated poster fan. And growing up, illustrated posters were really what got me into a lot of cinema, a lot of horror. Some of the classics like um, uh, the old old Indiana Jones poster, the old Nightmare on Elm Street posters, uh, the uh, fucking Mad Max posters, like the poster for Road Warrior um, so I was curious cause you do this as your gig. This is your full-time gig is uh, illustrating and doing poster work, correct?
1: Yeah, well, it's all kinds of, uh, illustrating, uh, but these days I found myself mostly in film and, uh, publishing. So, uh, I do a lot of posters, like you say, and a lot of DVD covers. So that's the kind of key art side. Uh, and then uh, in publishing, I do a lot of book covers and uh, book interiors. But the, the book covers and the posters, as you can imagine, kind of uh, coincide. There's basically a mixture of typography and illustration.
0: That so, I love. Uh, so, how did you get started? How did you get into it?
1: Uh, it's it's a long oscillating uh, path to illustration. <laughs> Uh, But uh, I don't know how far back you want me to start. I'll be quick, whichever, however far back you want me to go. But uh, I haven't always been an illustrator. Uh, So uh, I was always into drawing, like obsessively into drawing and music. So playing the guitar and drawing pictures, pretty much my uh, raison d'etre since I was before I was able to walk, I'd imagine. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, and and movies too, so total movie geek, total guitar geek, and uh, music geek, and art. Uh, The problem was I was uh, not uh, a kid who would necessarily apply himself to anything. Uh, I liked having fun more than working hard, Uh, (laughs) so uh, I kind of didn't really apply myself in school, and... uh, was a bit of a messer, and uh, I, you know, dropped out of college a couple of times. One of which was a, an art college, a really prestigious art college in Dublin in Ireland. Uh, but I went doing fine art, and it just wasn't for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I didn't know what I was going to do, and the whole drawing thing. Everyone just sort of assumed my whole life I'd end up uh, making art. And I, I think I kind of assumed it too. So that's why I didn't really put much effort in. I kind of thought, Asher, you know, I'm able to do it. I'll be grand. <laughs> uh, so uh, I went off and I dropped out of college, art college, my second college. And uh, I went off traveling to Australia and I worked on building sites. And uh, I w- moved to London and was working in pubs. And as a painter decorator and all kinds of different jobs. And then I ended up uh, getting uh, a week's work in sky, which is the big broadcaster in the UK. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the week uh, turned into five and a half years working in sky sports, uh, okay. where I looked after football clubs, uh, online video stuff. Huh. Uh, this is kind of at the start of video online. So like new U- YouTube, was only a new thing when uh, I started there. Uh, and this was back in the very early days of online video. So, like, I worked for Man United, Chelsea, Arsenal, all these big football clubs putting video stuff on their websites. Yeah. Um, um, but I wasn't drawing. And uh, towards the end of that five and a half years, I kind of really started to realize that I was wasting not wasting talent, but wasting my sort of love for all things design and illustration. And I was getting more and more into graphic design and more into illustration and getting in trouble in my job because all I wanted to do was design graphics and they wanted me to do boring stuff like upload videos. (laughs) And uh, much like I was in school, I sort of uh, plowed my own furrow and did what I wanted to do instead of what... uh, what the man wanted me to do. (laughs) And I, Sky had this amazing creative department. Uh, So I started sort of moonlighting and I would go over there when my boss wasn't around and chat to the motion designers and the creative directors there. And they would set me projects uh, like create a series of idents for Cartoon Network or something like that. Cool. And I started doing that instead of doing my job. And uh, my relationship with my boss deteriorated, and uh, but the, my relationship with the creative department grew, and eventually they offered me a job uh, working on Sky One, their main entertainment channel. And they said, by the way, we think it's really admirable that you're willing to take such a huge pay cut uh, <laughs> uh, to do this. And I said, what do you mean, pay cut? Well, this is a a kind of a entry level, practically an internship. So it's 11,000 a year uh, position. Oh, wow. And like I I had rent to pay and bills and all that kind of stuff. Now, I was living on a boat at the time, so my rent wasn't a lot, but I still had to pay it.
0: Yeah, right. And uh,
1: (laughs) there was no way I was going to live on 11 grand. So uh, I said, look, I'm going to have to go and think about this. And in the meantime, my old boss, who I had not gotten along with because I wasn't doing my job, he had left and started another company working with Channel 4, another big UK broadcaster, Yeah, yeah. on their music stuff. Uh, and he offered me a job at his new company, despite the fact that we were sworn enemies at the time. Because <laughs> uh, he knew uh, I was big into music. And uh, I don't know, he kind of saw some potential in me that uh, I guess I didn't think he saw. So instead of the 11,000 a year creative job, I went and worked for him and Channel 4 Music uh, as uh, kind of a music journalist, uh, online content creator. So when Channel 4 did music TV, I would be there on set and interview guests and all that kind of stuff. Oh, cool, and man. Go to the award shows and go to gigs and write reviews of gigs. And it was great. It was uh, another one of my dreams was to be the guy at the back of the gig with the notebook and pen instead of the guy at the front dancing to the music. I always wanted to be that guy, you know, the kind of A&R fella.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally, man. And
1: uh, I kind of ended up doing that a bit because we also had this big unsigned band thing, and I looked after that. But the thing was, I wasn't drawing pictures. And my boss, who now I got on very, very, very well with, uh, kind of knew I wanted to draw more. And he would give me as much art jobs as he possibly could. He would have me designing T-shirts. And he he did all kinds of cool stuff to let me draw. And I always really, really appreciated it. But it it still wasn't quite enough. And I just had this ambition to be a full-time illustrator. Uh, So this was back in 07, I started talking to art directors and creative directors and ad agencies back home in Ireland. And they all said, Listen, come back home, move back. There's tons of work. Uh, You'll be a great success. Do it. So, okay, I'll do it. And I quit my job at Channel 4 and I packed my boat stuff in my boat up. And uh, I came back to Ireland and the recession hit. Oh, man. And uh, there was no work uh, whatsoever. But uh, I I thought, you know, I'm here and um, I'm going to give it my best shot. So uh, I just started taking on any kind of freelance work that came my way. And at the start, it's very few and far between. It's like a job every six months. Yeah. Uh, Paid shit money uh, like you would practically pay them to let you draw. And a lot of people knew that they kind of. I don't know if it's, it's quite a cynical attitude, but, you know, you were ripped off quite a lot.
0: Yeah, it happens uh, a lot. It happens a lot in yeah. our business, a lot in our it, business. It
1: really does. Kind of exploitative uh, side to it, unfortunately. Uh, but also, you know, you're, I was green and wet behind the ears, and I didn't know what I was doing. So it was as much my fault, uh, too. And just gradually started getting more jobs uh, very, very slowly. It was a painful first few years. And then I got this job uh, for the most, it's a really well-known gig venue in Dublin called Whelan's, uh, probably the most famous music kind of pub venue. Cool. And they said, uh, we want you to just do art for the walls, like posters, rock show art kind of stuff, and do as many as you want and with any subject you want. And we won't art direct or anything like that. We just want you to throw up whatever you want. And that was really the job that kind of changed everything because uh, I don't know how many I made, maybe 70 or 80 different pieces. I was able to really explore any kind of style I wanted. I could just draw the weirdest shit I could imagine. (laughs) Uh, And also I had to put typography on it because they were posters. Some of them were for real acts that had played there, uh, like Gus Van, Towns, Van Sant and... uh, uh, lots of famous bands and then some were just made up bands like my own band when I was a teenager and now has five posters up in Wheelands. We never played there at all. But <laughs> I was able to do that. And uh, yeah, it just, I was able to sort of uh, find my niche and I realized I was pretty okay at typography and mixing it with uh, illustration. And one of the pieces uh, won a prize in the American uh, Society of Illustrators thing. Well, it it got included in the exhibition and the book. It didn't win a medal or anything, but uh, it got included and doors opened and I became kind of known for poster work.
0: That's, That's fantastic, man.
1: It's a long story, like that's 25% of the story, so I'm sorry if I've prattled for hours.
0: <laughs> no, it's, it's really cool. I, I, I don't think we ever talked about that. I didn't know that you worked in the, the video side of stuff. I don't know if we chatted about that or not, but that's, that's cool.
1: I yeah, I mean, it's, it seems like another life now. Uh, it was my 20s, so I was 29 when I came back home to be a freelance illustrator. I'm 39 now, it's my 10th year. Um, so, But it really does seem like a totally other life. Like, Also added to the fact that I was in my 20s as an Irishman in London, having the best fun ever, <laughs> uh, uh, relatively wild, as most people are in their 20s, right. and my 30s has all been about hard work, and I met an amazing girl and got married and had kids, and now I'm a real old fuddy-duddy who just cares about uh, art and uh, his family, so... How times change.
0: That's very true, man. There is that progression. There is that (laughs) progression.
1: Big time.
0: But, but, you know, um, there's something really nice about that. I I mean, I kind of went through the similar sort of growth, although I don't I just turned 40 this year. I don't have kids yet. Um, But uh, for me, like the 30s were such a change because the 20s, you spend so much time in your 20s just trying to find your own confidence. You're trying to find your own footing and you're, you're working your way through it. Um, and for me, I just sort of put my head down and I was like, I'm just going to practice the craft. I'm just going to learn about film. I'm just going to get lost in film for a while. Um, and then the strange thing for me in the thirties, uh, people started to recognize my work. People started to come to me and ask advice. And so, uh, the thirties became really just a, a great time period. Like it's a really good time period for work. And there's a lot of young folks that, freak out when they cross into their thirties at this point where it's like, I haven't figured it out and I'm not successful yet. I, I really think the thirties is the, is the time for that. That's if you have a passion for something and you're young enough right now and you, you don't know if it's worth the risk, definitely take it. Cause the thirties have been the best. They were the best 10 years that I've had so far, man. They're, they're yeah. phenomenal. Phenomenal. hundred percent
1: agree. Yeah. I mean, your twenties your should be about, uh, Doing anything and everything, you know. It used to be the case of, you know, in our parents' generation, when you were nineteen, that's it—you're grown up, and uh, your twenties was not an extension of your teenage years. But thankfully, now you get this extra ten years to just go mental and push yourself in different directions and sort of um, see see what it is you like. And I don't think you can know really until you hit that age where you're tired of partying and, uh, you can't do three day benders anymore. And uh, yeah. <laughs> you you just want to kind of quieten things down and really focus and actually fulfill the potential you might know you have, you know, there's also a case of you're just tired of wasting your yourself. And so, yeah, spending that time in your thirties in a much quieter calmer, but determined and focused way, uh, You sort of put all those energies you had, uh, kind of divert them from partying to work and furthering yourself. And uh, it really is a brilliant uh, period. I agree with you. Looking forward to the 40s too.
0: Yeah, no, Don't I think know. I, I think that you know, I just started year one, so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, you know, I still feel like I'm 15 years old, but <laughs> yeah, I know. You know I mean, and, and you know, hangovers last for days. <laughs> oh, it's just not worth it. It's crazy. Yeah, man, it's it's nuts. <laughs> yeah,
1: like uh, yeah, and everything hurts, and also you become noisier. But I've realized, uh, it's near, I'm going to be 40 in April. What I've noticed is I'm a lot noisier when I do stuff like, I mean, tying your shoelaces. <laughs>
0: <laughs> very true very true
1: <laughs> you get noisier as you get older
0: see luckily i date i have uh Gina's younger than i am and she always gives me shit uh and she's like <laughs> stop being such a fucking old man so it's good because i'm not falling <laughs> i'm not falling into the trap i think that a lot of folks when they get into the 40s fall into where it's like okay my body hurts and now everything's slowing down and I'm becoming older I've always tried to surround myself with younger people just because that energy is so infectious and it's this, I I often feel like there's that battle of not becoming that, that crusty old guy that's on the front porch, just (laughs) screaming at kids, you know,
1: (laughs) (laughs) screaming at the world. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Oh no. Yeah. Uh, You got to hold on to your, your youth too. But, uh, I don't know. It's it's sort of finding the balance, isn't it? It's it's much calmer. You sort of, you you're you're not afraid to be yourself either. I think when you get older, you kind of, yeah. You know, there's less pretense about everything. It's just ugh, look, take me as I am now at this at this stage. I'm not here to please you. Yeah, and, and then scream, scream at them.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. And there's something really nice about that level of confidence. And I think it's just that time and experience where. You know, you've been a freelancer for for years, and I, I have too. And and in the beginning, when you're freelancing, it, it always seems like the most impossible thing. You know, it's like I'm waiting forever for a check. Oh my God, how do I survive without money? How do I survive without all this stuff? And after yeah. after doing it for me, I've been freelancing for about 18 years. And after doing it for that long, you just know it comes in cycles. You understand that. Um, you know, sometimes work comes, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes inspiration comes, sometimes it doesn't, but you just have to push your way through it. And yeah. you fall back on that level of confidence that you have in yourself and your work and your craft.
1: Yeah, you know? definitely. It, it, uh, the creative industries, whatever walk you're in, whether it's directing or creating art or anything, it rewards the kind of uh, rewards, perseverance, and uh, it rewards staying power. I think more than anything else, I would imagine a lot of people drop off in the early years when it's very, very tough yeah. and just think I can't do this. I mean, I was so close over the years because like, like I say, I got married and had kids very early on in the freelance career. So we did that when I was earning next to nothing. Wow. And, um, my wife is a primary teacher and endlessly, uh, primary school teacher, endlessly patient. And she looked after us in that period. And, uh, but there was many, many times when it was just a thought of, I can't keep doing this. I can't go back home and say, sorry, they didn't pay me today. They say it's going to be another 30 days. You know, I'm, I need to get a fucking job. In it, and what am I going to do? You know, do I go and work in a shop or something? Uh, <laughs> so thankfully, uh, it never came to that. It came close, but never did. And then jobs become more frequent. And uh, like you say, you you become sort of uh, attuned to the cycle and, Things work out once you stick with it.
0: Yeah, that's very true. Someone said that to me once when I was younger where they were like, hey, just stick it out because you'll make it as long as you can hold out for it, you know, and it's very true because people, a lot of life things happen, life experiences happen to folks and and people have to make decisions and and it's a scary, scary thing deciding to be a freelancer because there's no such, there's no certainty in anything. Yeah. No, um, but it's I love it. It's there's nothing more rewarding than being your own boss. There's nothing more, at least from a director standpoint, my world is so weird, uh, whether it's I'm coming up with ideas or whether I'm location scouting and going to strange places or meeting really interesting people are, mm-hmm. are hanging out with dudes like you and, and and dabbling a bit in the poster world, dabbling a bit in the music world. Um, mm-hmm. It's a very exciting uh, and fun experience and rewarding uh, job, but there is no such thing. There's no such thing as like depending on a paycheck.
1: <laughs> no, no. If you're, if you're going to depend on a paycheck, you're just going to send yourself around the twist. Yeah. Just, just sort of, uh, focus on the creative side and the pay will come in eventually. And then when it does come in, Don't think you're as rich as Croesus and go blowing it all because you've got, you know, a thousand dollars in your bank account. You don't. I wish I knew that. I wish I could go back to my younger self and say, just hold on to some of it.
0: Exactly. Dude, it's the truth, man. You got to like I always I always related to being a squirrel and you're just you're you're hunting for nuts that you just stack away for the winter because, you know, you know that it's going to get it's going to get dead.
1: Yeah, um, I ate all of my nuts. Yeah. Every every time. <laughs> I I would not be someone who's very good at um I don't have a lot of willpower in terms of uh, that kind of stuff, but I'm learning it. I think maybe I do now, but uh yeah. Yeah. I'm a, a pleasure seeker kind of guy, so oh, wow, I got paid. Woo, party time. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's
0: not wise. It's not wise. All right, well, let's get back into poster stuff, man. Like, um, Let's do it. So I was saying earlier that um, when I was younger, I was a huge fan of these illustrator posters. And then there hit this point, I feel like it was in the 90s, where all of a sudden uh, the studios decided that it's better to photo put, put photo montages together. And it was like early Photoshop stuff. It was really trashy cutouts and collages and it really sort of killed and destroyed the art of illustrated movie posters for years and years. Big Um, time. um, And then the resurgence of that, I don't know, like I was trying to figure it out. Do you think the resurgence of that is because of places like um, um, the Alamo Draft House and Mondo posters? Mondo. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. And what's your, what's your take on all that?
1: well, I think it's definitely down to galleries like Mondo and uh, all the others out there and the collectors of movie posters. I think like this generation of ours that grew up with Drew Strews and posters, we never appreciated those photo montage posters. And there was this kind of um, uh, nostalgia for those illustrated posters of the past. And then, you know, those people who appreciated those old posters and missed them had a couple of quid and, and someone, somebody somewhere made an alternative illustrated poster for a movie. I don't know who the first guy was like, I'd imagine it's been going on for a long, long time. Yeah. Uh, And all these people out there went, ah, this is just like the posters. I remember from when I was a kid, I love it. And I'll buy that screen print. And this absolutely gargantuan industry broke out uh, where, You have all these collectors and all these amazing commissioners and galleries uh, creating alternative posters. And I think what you've seen then as a result is in the last couple of years, uh, the studios take notice of that. And uh, I think they're starting to commission more and more illustrated posters. They've relearned the value of having an appealing poster that someone might want on their wall. I mean, it's not... It hasn't completely come back, but the likes of Paul Shipper, uh, who whose style is quite Drew Struzan, he's back making posters for major pictures. Yeah, uh, there's loads of them. There's guys getting hired by the major studios all the time. So I think the future is definitely bright for the illustrated poster.
0: Yeah, it's such a great thing. And and as a as a as a moviegoer and as a director, I always loved how an illustrated poster could blow your world up bigger than you could have shot it and it's it's the type of thing where it's such an inexpensive relatively it's such an inexpensive way to add scale and scope to a world that you weren't able to do in front of the camera essentially yeah um and i love that i love uh just seeing uh, for instance like the old nightmare on elm street posters or um yeah what was that old Clint Eastwood movie? I think it was the gauntlet. And didn't Frazetta do a poster for the gauntlet? I think. And uh, I remember seeing that and it was like Clint Eastwood and he was like, climbing out of a bus. It was an illustrated version of him, which is very frizzetta. so it was like a muscular yeah. Clint Eastwood. Yeah, and he's, ripped
1: torn clothes.
0: Yeah, and he's got like some blonde girl holding onto his leg, and he's got like a revolver out. I remember seeing that poster going, this movie looks fucking awesome. And then yeah. you watch the film, and it's, you know, it's whatever.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's a there was a lot of that where the poster was definitely better than the movie, but I mean, it's just... If, if you're a, a production company and you want to sell your movie, I just think that making, uh, I don't know, they must have looked at sales figures and stuff. Like, Have you ever seen those, uh, some websites have done studies on the different types of movie posters uh, according to the genre of film. No. So if you have a kind of an indie Little Miss Sunshine type film, they'll always be orange and the typography is the same, and the positioning of the characters is the same. Huh. Uh, if you have, yeah, I'll I'll try and dig one out, and I'll send you a link, but they, they've kind of grouped all these film posters by genre, and you'll notice they all look the same. Uh, and that tells me that there must have been market research going on as to who's likely to buy tickets to a movie in the cinema when they see a particular style of poster. And I think now what we're going to see mm. is People are going to do that, and the research is going to tell them, have an awesome illustrated poster. Like, you're going to have producers there going, We've seen the final edit of this film, and it's a piece of shit. <laughs> oh, I don't know what we're going to do. You know what you do? Okay, you hire one of the best poster illustrators out there to make an awesome poster. And that thing's going to sell tickets. And uh, hopefully, (laughs) that's the way it's going to go.
0: You'll at least get people there on opening weekend.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I I
0: completely agree with it, man. I think, like I said, I just love um, setting a a tone. And that's basically what you're trying to do as a filmmaker. There's a danger when you're promoting movies that you don't want to give too much of it away. And this also translates to trailers. And I think it translates to my love of promotions for for cinema Anyways, Sometimes I actually like the actual promotions and the art of how a movie was promoted more than I enjoy the film itself. Mm. Um, And I think that there's something really important about setting a tone instead of just telling everybody exactly what the fuck they're going to go see. Because there's nothing worse than spoiling shit for folks. Um, And I, I just feel like a good trailer that is like really impressionistic. I always love um, the original alien trailer yeah. where they shot that egg thing on the table, which wasn't in the movie. It was like, obviously they hired some other company to just shoot this egg thing that they slowly rolled the camera over this miniature and then uh, did this montage cut with no dialogue and just sound effects work of, the scariest little moments that happen in that movie. And you watch that trailer and that trailer in itself is a work of art that doesn't give, doesn't give anything away in the film. Yeah. Um, yeah. and that even with their poster for the first alien, which I think was photography of miniatures, um, yeah. it was just so perfectly done where it set the fucking tone for this thing.
1: And yeah. And even the movie, uh, kind of, you know, the reason, it was so scary is because you, you didn't really see the alien until, uh, until late on, you know, it's that classic thing of horrors of sort of hinting at letting the viewer's imagination scare them before you do.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's something definitely missing both in terms of marketing the film and in terms of the movies too. I like when I see a big CGI monster or ghost or something, I'm, I'm gone. I'm sorry. I, maybe it's my age or something, but, CGI doesn't matter what they do it just doesn't scare me whereas you hinted something with a big drooping bit of acid slime coming out of a hole in the ceiling and <laughs> I'm going to start getting nervous.
0: <laughs> well, I think that's an interesting byproduct of that time period. I mean there's the there's the famous stories, the infamous stories of Jaws and the reason mm-hmm. why you didn't see the shark is cuz I couldn't get the fucking thing to work. Yeah, yeah. And and the same thing with Alien. I've I've heard uh, interviews with Ridley Scott. And, uh, you know, he's like, there's a fucking guy in a suit running around and I, <laughs> you don't want to see that. And so for him, he's always been a genius with lighting and atmosphere and, mm. and darkness and finding those moments. And if you notice, anytime you see the alien, there's usually some sort of fucking strobe lighting going on or something else yep. just to, to disguise the fact that it's a really skinny dude in a rubber
1: suit. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant genius. Uh, that was my first, uh, R rated film. <laughs> and i was uh i was seven about six or seven years old and my oldest brother was babysitting me and this was the first and last time i think he ever babysat me and uh he said okay look i'm just gonna put on a movie for you okay brother uh i'm gonna put on this one and i looked at the box and i over here our rated phones are called 18 you'd have the age limit written on them okay and as uh, and Mark, it says 18. I don't think I'm meant to watch that. Ah, you'll love it. You'll be, you'll be fine. And he put it on and it was Alien. And uh, I absolutely loved it. I loved every. I think I watched it about three times in a row. And uh, that explains an awful lot of my current uh, imagination is a little bit on the dark side. I think that's probably the root of it. Yeah.
0: It's, it's Dude, I had very similar scenarios when I was younger and I watched movies that I shouldn't have watched when I was a kid. <laughs> Uh, And and everybody's worried that you're going to grow up and become a serial killer. I think it's quite the opposite. I think when you do watch that stuff, you grow up to become an artist. (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. Exactly.
0: Because I I mean, for me, I miss that moment. I miss that initial scare. I miss, you know, I, I mean, it's Halloween today. It's Halloween. And this time of year, I remember being a young kid and sort of sitting around and watching a lot of horror stuff that I wasn't allowed to watch. Mm -hmm. And you'd pop, you'd pop in like Nightmare on Elm Street. You'd pop in like Dreamscape, which I watched the other day. And it it scared the shit out of me. And the older I get, the less that I get those scares. And if I, if I feel it for a moment, like if I'm watching a movie and I get goosebumps or I get chills, I just savor it. I just try to like, (laughs) I, I try to contain that moment. And, uh, as an artist myself, I just want to give folks and i guess my audience really is young people i really want to give folks that initial scare that Hmm. i just and i want to just at the end of it just go savor it enjoy it (laughs) like enjoy this thing before you become too old and fucking jaded that you're gonna forget how to get scared you know
1: exactly exactly oh well who's there most definitely gave me that oh good uh, when you first sent me uh, when we first started talking about the poster yeah and you sent me the cut. Uh, I was cursing you watching it because uh, where I work, uh, where my studio is, is about a 200-year-old building. And uh, it's I'm above about three floors of antiques. And it's very, very cool. But during the week, there's nobody here. There's a cafe downstairs, but the antiques place is closed. And on a dark, wet, windy day, I crept up through three floors of creaking old antiques. <laughs> seeing figures in the corners that weren't really there. And then I came in and I had an email from you to watch this and do the poster. And I started watching, I sat there and I, for fuck's sake, this is scaring the piss out of me Uh, in the best way. I enjoyed it, but uh, yeah, I think you definitely achieved it with who's there.
0: Well, thanks, man. I mean, that was the, the goal for that movie ultimately was it's for me, it was an examination in suspense. It's an examination in uh, the terror that, uh, you can find in a home and especially an old home. Um, I don't know if you've ever been out here to new England in the U S um, but I, I would say that it's probably the closest to what Europe is like as far as, cause it's our, what like our oldest area for such a young country. I mean, the house yeah. that, that I live in was built in like the late 1800s, early 1900s. So for us, that's old, that's old, you know? Yeah. And um I, like I love that about New England and I th- that was one of the best things for who's there when the movie finally comes out you'll see that we shot this thing in this house that was built in the early to mid 1800s and it was such a huge change from what the script was cuz initially our script was like a, a couple that lives in an apartment and mm-hmm. what a lot of studios want these days is relatability so right. they, they want it to be every everybody's neighborhood every place you know that's why it was so fucking successful it's like how do we connect with as many people as possible so we can make billions <laughs> on this yeah, fucking right. and so you know our initial intent was like hey we'll do this in an apartment and we'll sort of do that we'll we'll make it really simple and i always have i always have a problem with that um because when i see new houses especially here in the US i know that they're all sort of fabricated from the same fucking parts like over here we have Home Depot I don't know if you guys have Home Depot in uh I hope you don't have it in Ireland but it's like this giant corporate fucking um uh hardware store and literally every new house that you see on the market every new development has the same fucking doorknobs the same fucking trim the same fucking shit that anybody can get at Home Depot it's literally like aisle 24 built this fucking house you know
1: yeah We have Ikea, which is probably... uh, It's very
0: similar. Very very fucking similar. So when I see a lot of modern movies with modern production design, I find them really fucking boring. Because every time I look at that stuff, I go, that's fucking aisle 24 in Home Depot. Like that fucking (laughs) doorknob is is from that spot. And I get it. It's fucking relatable. But when I walked into this house, and it was a random scenario that I got this place, and I walked inside... And this house had layers and layers and layers of production uh, design already built into it from the years of like home improvements, un- yeah. unlicensed like electrical work. Like, if like, there's a shot in the trailer where the camera pushes on that door as it's being knocked on, mm-hmm. there's a strange fucking, if you look closely on the left hand side, somebody put a wall switch for an electrical wall switch for the light. Mm -hmm. They actually cut a hole in the trim of the door and put a wall switch in the actual trim of the door. And it's such a weird thing that as we're looking at it and scouting the place, I'm like, I love this house. It has all these really strange uh, decisions made by people that were doing uh, home improvements. And then that starts to add this layer of texture and add this element of design. It's and, like
1: it was grown instead of built. Exactly. You know,
0: and I'll get a lot of credit for it, but the truth of the matter is I just showed up to this fucking house and literally saw this giant, these giant rooms, giant fireplaces, libraries, all this really great stuff. And it, I felt like I was walking into like a Guillermo del Toro set or like the old Shining mm. house. Um, yeah. And we were like, hey, we got to change the treatment because this fucking place is a dream. And I'm so happy that we did because aesthetically the the place is so much more creepy. It is so much more creepy because of that. It's another
1: character in your movie. Yeah. Maybe the character. It
0: is. I think so, man. Mm -hmm. I really do. I think that it is a a major character in the film and, and um, we, also made sure that the movie took place during the holidays so that the film itself is an actual holiday movie. It's a Christmas movie, (laughs) (laughs) Which, which I love making, Uh, I like taking a holiday that's supposed to be so happy and jovial and everybody's supposed to be getting together.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we should do another poster, but make it really Christmassy and friendly, like put the Christmas tree in the crackling fire there. Yes, we should. Maybe change the typography and make people think, oh, wow, one of those really (laughs) feel-good Miracle on 34th Street kind of Christmas movies. Let's take the kids and then play Who's There, see what happens. Fear soaked in neon.
0: <laughs> Dude, you've got me. You've got me hooked. <laughs> <laughs> this seems like a good spot to take a break and uh, give a little bit of love to the people that sponsor the show, the people that support my work. Um, I love these guys, and I love to promote them. So don't fast forward. Hang out. Listen. Maybe you learn something. Right. All right. First up, the boys from Puget Systems. So if you are a video editor, if you're a graphic designer, if you're an illustrator and you're listening to the show and you're an illustrator, and you are in the market for a new computer, like your old computer just isn't fast enough, you can't seem to be able to cram enough RAM into that old box that they have, um, and you're looking for something A, affordable, and B, fast and powerful, um, then I highly suggest you think about going to a PC. Uh, I made the switch years ago uh, because I was tired of being restricted. I was tired of only having two or three options to choose from. And I was tired of looking at the cost of the hardware and going bullshit. (laughs) So I did the search and I did the research on it. And I knew that I could build my own computer Um, because I used to do that as a kid. But if you've ever built a machine, you know that it comes with the tiresome process of ordering various parts and putting those parts in and making sure that those parts work. Um, Even though they're supposed to work, sometimes they don't. And then you're going through the bios and you're dealing with all this different stuff. And then to make things worse when you are using them and if you are running a business and you have other people on those machines, you end up becoming tech support because not everybody is savvy with PCs or how to build PCs. So as a business owner, I wanted to do the responsible thing. And I wanted to try to find somebody who could provide the systems to us who would also provide real tech support. I don't mean like a chat room and waiting three days for them to get back to you kind of thing. I mean like someone answers the phone. Um, And that's how I found Puget Systems. Puget Systems builds custom built PCs Um, and they do it in a very clever way. So basically if you go to PugetSystems.com, you can, uh, click on whatever program you use, whatever sort of industry you're in, and they will start to suggest their basic system for that. Um, and their basic stuff, I'm sorry that my phone's ringing, uh, fucking what a (laughs) completely unprofessional uh so their basic stuff is fucking great and high speed and really intense but if you want something custom and you want something built specifically for your art and for your needs which i highly suggest um you can reach out to them and tell them exactly what it is that you do and they will help you put together a great system um i cannot say enough good things about these guys i have uh there's two or three systems now uh, in the edit suite I've cut all of my recent movies on their stuff um, we do full 4k real time timelines um, like really great high speed um, playback so like I said if you're in the business for a new computer check them out go to PugetSystems.com check out the prices check out what they make And think twice before you just buy something because people tell you you're supposed to. Okay, so next up, rule Boston camera. So are you a filmmaker that is constantly trying to keep up with the latest technology, right? So you have clients that are every year, every six months, wanting to shoot on the newest fucking camera on the market right and so how do you keep up with it because these cameras are expensive man and then half the time when you buy the camera you're dealing with clients that are asking if you could just throw it in or maybe you can do some sort of package deal so you end up with this hardware that you can't really pay off so you end up indebted to this gear um I highly suggest you do what I do, which is you go and you make a great relationship with your local rental house. And if you have a really good rental house, uh, these guys will keep up on technology, they will train you on the newest gear, you'll be able to go in and get your hands on it and test it and play with it, um, and then they're reliable. So out here in New England, Rule Boss the Camera is the best. They're the spot to go if you're looking for the best new gear if you're looking for the best customer support. Um, And these guys have been wonderful to me over the years. I think I've been a client of theirs for almost 18 years at this point. So they're amazing. And uh, if you're a young filmmaker, I know a lot of the young guys out there and gals out there are just afraid of going to rental houses. Like I don't have production insurance. Uh, Do they charge an arm and a leg? And they're very sort of insecure about approaching them. Just go talk to these guys. They love to meet new people. I actually have like community events where they'll bring people in and they'll have guest speakers teach you on how the new gear works um, it's a really easy thing to do i highly suggest it so if you're a new filmmaker in the market if you want better quality behind your product um, definitely make friends with your local rental house and if you're in new england check out rule boston camera they're the best all right, guys, let's get back into it with Matt. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. Thanks. <clears throat> let's get into a little bit of how we met. So I saw your work for Arrow. So you did uh, posters for Arrow DVDs, correct?
1: I've, I've done, uh, yeah, I've done 77 covers. Uh, Jesus. Well, covers, uh, booklets, uh that kind of stuff, but all in all, it's 77 so far and counting uh, pieces of art for Arrow. Yeah, they've been a, an absolutely amazing client of mine.
0: And, and what are some of the big titles that you've done stuff for? Uh,
1: well, for Arrow, as you know, with Arrow Video and Arrow Academy, it's kind of more on the cult uh, side. Mm-hmm. Now, Arrow with Arrow Films, they produce a lot of uh, huge uh, movies as well, but for their DVD collection... Uh, it's kind of the on the cult side, but there's been a few really uh big time cult films. Like my second cover. I think my it was my second cover was for Zardoz, which is uh Yes the Sean Connery and the Mankini uh thing. Fucking uh, bat
0: batshit movie. <laughs> it's yeah, it's
1: crazy. <laughs> absolutely crazy. Um, then the one after that was uh The Adventures of Boku Banzai. Yes. And uh uh, that was my first taste of a very mixed reaction. So I think it was just my third cover for them. And it was definitely mixed. Uh, uh, a lot of people liked it and a lot of people didn't like it. Um, and it was soon after that I stopped looking at comments and looking at the forums to see how the covers were going down. Because I, I realized then you definitely can't please everyone, especially when it, it's such a cult film. Like these films are so beloved. Yeah. Uh, by the collectors that, like, you're sort of intruding on their dream by creating new cover art. Now, the thing with Arrow is if you don't like the new cover, you can flip it and you have the original art. Um, but uh, it was definitely mixed. And uh, since, let me think, there's been so many. Uh, one I did recently, which I was really happy with, was Reanimator. Mm-hmm. And that was a special edition steel uh that went on sale on FYE, Uh, I was pretty happy with that. Um, There's just been loads. There's loads still to come out as well. Sometimes you do covers for them, and for whatever reason, they don't get released. So I still have a few in the pipeline that haven't come out yet.
0: That's pretty rad. And how long does it usually take you to to do a commissioned piece like that?
1: Uh, So it kind of depends. I have the sort of same process every time. Uh, which is uh, I'll watch the film uh, once definitely through, just through, straight through, and then I'll watch it again uh, taking screen grabs, um, not to use necessarily, like sometimes they're used as reference, all right, but uh, like there can be screen grabs of anything. It's just as ideas pop into my head or if I think a certain shot will, will generate some kind of idea, I just take hundreds of screen grabs as I go through the film. -hmm And uh, the idea is that I want to understand the story and we were talking about um, trailers and posters uh, kind of hinting at a story but not giving anything away. So that's what I love the most about doing DVD covers and posters and book covers too is trying to distill a story into a single image. and with the arrow covers, you're doing that, so you're trying to take the essence of the film and portray it in one image, uh, the kind of the feeling of the film. But then also, given that they're cult and they're all, all like kind of pre-loved films for want of a better expression, you want to make something iconic that you, know, you hope people will like and will, when they know the movie, say, yeah, that definitely gets the film. Uh, the thing I, h- I hate to see is when people go, oh, he obviously never watched this movie. Because <laughs> this is just nothing like the film. And that's happened. And uh I hate that because it's like, actually, I, I watched it maybe three times in a row. And it kind of, I, I guess, maybe pride myself a little on being able to get, get the movie, you know? Yeah. Um, get yeah. it down to an image. But, you know, you-, you can't please everybody. So I'll do that and then I'll... uh throw the ideas down really, really roughly on uh, thumbnail sketches in a notebook and they're sketches I wouldn't show anybody because you'd wonder how I'm a professional illustrator when you see them because they're, they're awful, but they're just for me to get ideas down and I'll work up one or two a little bit better and I'll send them off to Arrow and then they'll say, yeah, like that, don't like that and proceed to final and that's how it's done. So the length of time it takes to do them changes, but anywhere from a week, uh, a few days, I've done covers in 24 hours when they need a very tight turnaround. Um, it just sort of depends.
0: That's rad, man. And and you have mentioned a few times that you can't please anybody. I I honestly, I, I'd rather that the artist didn't. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. I mean, because there hits a point where, I think we're seeing it a lot right now, which is sort of this fan service shit. And Uh um, we're dealing with a lot of big corporations that are making big movies that need to get big returns on it. And so they're really paying way too much attention to the audience and allowing the audience to kind of dictate how a story goes. Yeah. But if you look at the stuff that we truly fucking love, if you look at the films that really stand out and the, the films that have influenced all of us, they were done by a singular voice in somebody that was like, look, this is my idea, this is my vision, and this is how we're going to make it, and maybe yeah. it'll be fantastic, and maybe it won't be fantastic, but fuck it. And uh, I think that with the fan service that we get these days, you start to get like the new Star Wars movies, you start to get this stuff mm-hmm. that just is lukewarm. Yeah. And one of the things I really like about, a lot of the illustrated stuff that I see for movie posters is that it does come from someone's perspective and it comes from such an original spot. And, and so, like, I've been obsessed over the past month of, uh, the thing. So I've been watching the thing again. Mm-hmm. It's the holiday season. I love that fucking movie. Yeah. Me too. And I was digging real deep and finding really great fan art and really great illustrated works for the thing. And some Mm -hmm. of my favorite stuff comes out of left field, like comes from a completely new fucking place. And maybe they took elements of the creature and the shape-shifting, and maybe they take Mm -hmm. elements of the dog. But the design for it is so different, and it breathes a whole new life into this world that I love so much.
1: Yeah. You'd love – I'm sure you've seen them, all the Polish movie posters. Oh, yes. Yes. Like they're just unbelievable. It's, you know, taking – they just fuck the imagery in the film. This is what this film makes me feel. They're just total artistic interpretations of it. They're just incredible. Love them. There's one, one for the shining, uh, Google the Polish poster for the shining. It's like, Oh my God, I've done a few fan posters for the shining. I couldn't even come close (laughs) to this. It's like, it's nearly better than the Sol Bass, uh, one, but, uh, yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, not to be in service of the of the fans so much, but I guess in in the case of the Arrow films, they want the fans to like them because they want them to buy the DVD, you know. Sure. And I suppose that in those cases, it's my job to make something that's visually appealing. So it's sort of a balance between making an image that I want to make and making an image that I think looks good and that I I think people might like you know it's not totally in service to them but it's also a little bit with that in mind you know you're you're almost kind of you know not a fashion designer but you want to make stuff that looks cool yeah i've been on the wrong side of it i did one of the most uh, famous films i did a cover for and it was a complete disaster was for cinema paradiso oh wow And uh, I watched the film like I always do a bunch of times and uh, did my rough ideas and sent it off. And we settled on one concept. And the concept was you had the little boy peeking through the curtains, uh, kind of cinema curtains from the projector and reflected on the projector as... uh, Uh, kind of you can just faintly see the image of uh, one of the kisses from one of the famous black and white movies they're showing and the old man's in the background. But to my mind, curtains in a cinema are always this kind of maroon color, right? Mm -hmm. So I did the cover and we put it out and it was detested and hated and ripped asunder Um, because I used this color red. They said, that like, it looks like a horror movie uh, cover. (laughs) <laughs> and that was one example where i didn't think about fans of cinema paradiso which is one of the most heartwarming beautiful films ever made i just thought about no i think cinema curtains look a deep red color and i uh, produced a cover that looks like flowing blood around uh, a sad little boy's face and uh, it got canned so yeah you got to strike a balance i think
0: that's good. It's good advice, but it's not surprising since uh, you have those horror roots back to being yeah. the kid watching Alien.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, it's often been said uh, that, you know, even if I tried to say if I tried to do a kid's picture book about bunny rabbits skipping in a spring meadow, it'd be the freakiest looking bunny rabbits you've ever seen. I can't help it. Just what comes out just tends to be dark. I wrote some, I've written three books uh, for young readers, 10 plus, and uh, uh, a lot of people say this stuff is way too scary for kids. <laughs> and I'm like, I didn't think that was scary at all. And they're like, Are you kidding? This is properly freaky stuff. Uh, nightmare inducing. I was like, it's oh, funny. I really didn't think it was scary. I thought it was quite pleasant. But,
0: <laughs> you know. Well, yeah. I mean, the stories that we grew up with, you know, like Grimm's fairy tales and everything else. That that shit is horrific. Just because just because Disney ends up taking these movies and turning them into some easily digestible thing. You go back and look at the original stories for any of those Disney films.
1: They're horror, horror stories, horror stories. Yeah. I mean, let's look at Hansel and Gretel where, you know a witch tries to fatten a boy to eat him. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty dark stuff.
0: (laughs) Just teaching kids to stay away from strangers. Yeah. (laughs) Give them them the nightmares, you know, it's fine. Exactly. 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 Exactly.
1: Exactly.
0: So, all right. Um, so now you, so you're still working for Arrow. Um, is there any client that you really want to work for that you haven't worked for yet? Is there any, is there, are you still trying to hit like a big spot?
1: Um, in terms of clients that I'd love to work for, I've been really lucky and that I can list people like Warner brothers and Disney and that on my client list. Mm -hmm. Uh, I want to work for them more, you know, I guess that'd be more of an um, ambition. Um, Like, I've set up this new company now, so uh, which is really putting all the focus on marketing for movies and TV, a creative studio. Uh, And so definitely in that sense, I want to work with all kinds of productions, small and big, uh, to get that going. Um, but my burning ambition is no longer kind of based around who I work for, unless it's maybe Steven Spielberg or Scorsese or something. But uh, <laughs> yeah. no, it's it's more about I, w- I just want to make cool shit. That, that's fundamentally what it comes down to. And even this new company, uh, Voyager Knots, it's like it's not so much saying I want to make marketing assets for your movie or your TV show. It's saying I want to make the coolest possible shit for your movie or TV show, you know, whether it's the poster or whether it's a marketing campaign or whether it's using virtual reality or augmented reality or something, I really want to push my own personal skills. I want to hire people who have other skills that I don't have. And I just fundamentally want to make really cool stuff. And if that's for uh, a big production company like Warner brothers or someone, or if that's for an indie, I I really don't mind. It's just I would like to take the work on to sort of a new level and start doing some really, really cool stuff.
0: That's awesome, man. That's really cool. That's the burning
1: ambition. And then uh, in terms of the publishing book side, which I still work a lot in and I do an awful lot of book covers, again, similarly, I've worked with all of the big publishers and still work with them regularly. I'm very lucky in that sense. And there are one or two projects that are dream projects for me to work on in terms of books uh there's a very 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 slim chance that one might be happening i can't go into any detail but cool if it if it does happen uh and the publisher is promising nothing it's just an idea but if it does happen i'm going to retire and i'm never going to draw again because it's just it'd be impossible to to surpass how cool (laughs) this would be
0: Somehow, somehow I don't, I don't believe you. (laughs) I
1: don't don't know. This would just, it'd be very hard to to get cool with this and be a dream from a young age to do this, but sure. We'll see. We'll see. And yeah, I mean, that's it. I'm still ambitious and I want to work on great projects for big clients, but I'm just ambitious to make stuff. That's the best I can possibly make. That's what I'm ambitious to do. And I mightn't even necessarily be drawing a picture you know I've done a lot of drawings over ten years. Maybe it's time to kind of push it to new directions
0: very cool man very cool i you know it's a it's a cool job dude it, like i'm when I was younger i I trained because I thought I was going to be a comic book artist and i I did the sort mm-hmm. of classical art training and and I ended up ended up using those skills towards being a filmmaker and, and telling stories with a frame, but with with film and uh, video instead. Um, But I still storyboard and I still love the I still love the little world that is just sitting down in front of a sketchbook, you know, and just letting your imagination flow through a pencil. And it's it's I'm envious of it because literally you can come up with an idea and then just have all you really need is a piece of paper and a pencil to get started As opposed to, if I come up with an idea, I've got like two years, uh, a bunch of different, like each one of my pens and pencils come with their own life and their own attitude. (laughs) Because they're all different crew people, you know, so it's, I love that. I love the purity of it. I love just sort of sitting down and saying, okay, here's, here's my thought. And let me do a couple of rough sketches to see if it makes sense in my brain. And it makes sense that your rough sketches are stuff that you don't want to show anybody because it's almost like you're doing a rehearsal where you're just sort of sitting there going, let's just see what this looks like. Okay. It does look great. All right. That's the right composition. Let me get started down this path. Um, I love it, man. I've always been enamored by it. I've, I still go into art stores and I'll pick up pieces of like, I'll pick up charcoal or like erasers or it's it's shit just so I have it to feel that sort of wonderful, tangible, physical thing that is illustration. Mm. I I love that. Yeah,
1: definitely. I I think maybe I'm probably in danger after 10 years of losing the magical feeling of sitting down at my sketchbook. Um, (laughs) It's very much, um, like it's my job, and I'm. It's, it was always uh, my dream, and it's a great job. I'm definitely not complaining. I could be back mixing cement for bricklayers, and I'm not. I'm sitting drawing pictures for cool book covers and movies and stuff, and it's amazing. But I do it so often, and I, I tend these days to work on so many projects that the kind of magical buzz feeling of letting my imagination off the leash uh, as being replaced by, uh, ultra focused. I need to get this done by this time, you know, get it done here. You know, the idea is still flow and stuff, but I guess it's more, more of a professional thing.
0: Yeah. Uh, the side effect, of uh, the side effect of being in business for a while. Yes. <laughs> yes.
1: This is it. Exactly. So, um, i am definitely plan on, uh, first I need a little bit of a small break, even just a couple of days where I don't do anything. And then, uh, giving myself a little bit of space to just come up with new stuff and uh, and enjoy that side of it again, because it's definitely function uh, now. But when I did the books, I think that was the last time where instead of sitting down at a, a notebook, although that did happen, I would go for a long walk and... I would dream up the story. It was kind of like putting on an Oculus Rift headset and I was able to look around the world and <laughs> that side of it, I, I really, really loved. And I, I, I love creating stories uh, and world building and stuff like that. And um, Kind of hoping the new venture uh, won't just be movie marketing, but might in some way uh, move into, you know, creating actual stories and uh, IPs and things like that, um, because I love that side of it. Yeah. I think rather than sitting down to a sketchbook with a job to do for a book cover and coming up with concepts, I'd rather go for a walk in the woods and dream up a crazy story, you know, yeah. <laughs> but that's just being spoiled now, I suppose.
0: Uh, well, dude, it's, 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 you always have to remember, because what ends up happening a lot of times in this business for a lot of the young folks that are listening to it, you're passionate in the beginning because you have to be because you have nothing else. So you, mm-hmm. you don't have any money. You don't have, you don't have clients. So you are reliant upon your passion. And then there's something really exciting about learning your skill and, mm-hmm. and you become passionate about that. And then what happens is, is you create something that's really great or you come up with a style that's really fantastic. And then you start to get hired to do that style. You get to start, you get hired to do that over and over again because yeah. people become fans of the work that you've done Mm -hmm. And so then you find yourself falling into a rhythm where you're just trying to hit these deadlines and and make this stuff work. And you really need to stop at some point, take a breather and then create your own system of finding that passion again. Because like Mm. being inspired and, and being open to new ideas is so important, especially if you start to become successful. And you're starting to put out the same thing over and over and over and over again. I mean, next thing you know, it's been five years and you look at your body of work and you're really not excited about anything that you've done, even though it's great, you're just not excited about it because you haven't had that opportunity to go back into the brain and, and look at the world in a different way again.
1: Most definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Very important. And it's very easy to slip into the sort of uh, funk of, um, like what I was just talking about, just sort of turning it out and, uh, you know, making sure it's good, but not necessarily being totally in love with it and very easy to slip into. Um, and it's so important to fill the well when you work in any kind of creative line of work. Uh, you know, you, you've got, you have to draw from some, some, somewhere. So going out and Going to a show or going to that shop you were talking about to buy illustration or looking at other creative things. Go to a gallery. Go to a movie. Go to a play. Go for a walk. Whatever it might be, it's so important to kind of um, branch out and fill your head with all kinds of other stuff and uh, refresh the brain, so to speak.
0: Ah, uh, it's such a it's such an important thing right now too. I mean, this this <clears throat> what they say because we all use. Our phones. So everything that is in our world is literally within a foot of our face. You know what I mean? Mm. So we're holding these things that are so close to us and you're sort of scrolling through and you're Instagramming or whatever the fuck it is that you're doing on this thing and you're clocking in about five hours a day on this device and your eyes start to get fucked up. And I guess what you're supposed to do is for... Uh, every 20 minutes that you're looking at your device, you're supposed to actually look for at least a minute 200 feet away or off in the distance and then back to your device to help your eyesight. And I feel like it's the same way creatively. I feel like we become so focused and we get so concentrated in a little space, whether it's four or five feet in front of you, Mm -hmm. that you forget that, as a storyteller, it's important for you to be looking beyond that. It's important for you to reset and actually see what's going on around you and be inspired by what's going on around you, and then you go back into that tight little four foot four foot space that you created.
1: Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, absolutely. It makes absolute sense. Yeah, totally. And I I think I've uh, kind of done it recently in that. Uh, I had the story idea for my next books, uh, which weren't going to be kids' books. They were going to be for adults, and uh, I won't go into it, but uh, it was going to be a mixture of novels and graphic novels and then any other kind of medium. Uh, And so I decided I was going to do the graphic novel first. And I had the concept and I set up a Patreon to help me start doing it and uh, started work. And then I just realized this shit <laughs> you know the the basic concept is there but what i'm doing is i'm kind of going through the motions and i'm allowing outside influences way too much kind of dominion over the idea like not stealing ideas but you could just see the influences way too clearly and i just realized this just isn't working. And I am i think it's because I'm trying to push it out. Now, a certain amount of pushing ideas out has to happen. Otherwise, they don't come out at all. Yeah. But I just decided I need to stop this and not even think about it for a while and just let the imagination every now and again just land on it when it wants to land on it and come up with a new way of looking at it and not even give myself a time limit of when to go back to it. It might be five years before I return to the story. It might be five weeks. I don't know. But it definitely just felt I needed space from it in order to make it into something actually good you know and worthwhile. and I think you can apply that really across the board. Um, you can get tunnel vision, you know
0: dude, it's such a weird for me when I was starting out, I was so concerned about getting ideas out quickly. I was so concerned about uh, like if I had an idea, I had to bang it out and if it was if it was mm-hmm. coming to me, I had to make this thing work. And I was so focused on the technique. So I was Mm -hmm. so focused on how to physically make things happen. And it took me a little while to realize this. And I think this was when we're getting back into crossing into the 30s game. Mm -hmm. Um, At that point, I realized that more than half of my job is reliance upon me being creatively inspired. And more than half of my job is reliance upon me being able to either come up with ideas quickly or gestate ideas long enough that they become something really great. Yeah. And so I found very similar to the way people would start weightlifting, I found myself just sort of doing mental exercises. I found myself taking ideas that I had and just sort of writing them down and leaving them in a book that I don't touch for like a year. And it just mm. sort of sits there. And it has paid off astronomically and in the beginning when you're doing it you're like well this is a fucking waste because i'm supposed to be making things <laughs> and i'm just putting them in a book and i'm letting them sit there but i mean a great example of this is my other film 12 km yeah and, love... and, thank you and um <laughs> when i had originally heard about that russian drill story so i had heard mm-hmm. about that russian drill story like two or three years prior to that Right, And I was like, man, this would make a great fucking movie. And this would make a great movie that I'm, I would want to shoot in Russian. And at that time I didn't have any other inspiration. I was just sort of looking at it going, this would make a great fucking movie. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know how to pull it off. I didn't know who the hell would want to watch a movie that was in Russian. I didn't know any of that shit. And so I just let it sit and I put it away somewhere. Never fucking thinking, ever thinking that I would ever go to it again. Uh, for anything other than maybe a bit of inspiration, or character motivation, or something else, and mm-hmm. after I had my head injury and after I went through all that stuff, that story just fit into the world that I was creating. It just fit into my attitude. It fit into what I was doing, and because of my life experiences that I had in between the time that I had heard about that story and the time that I had filmed it, it became a mm-hmm. personal story to me. It became such an important thing, and. Honestly, it's become the film that defines me at this moment. And mm. I never would have thought that back when I was having that conversation five years prior to it, sitting there going, This is make a great movie, but who the fuck's gonna want to watch it? <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Wow.
0: It's a good, it's a good example of how letting things it's you let them settle, you let them age, you let them mold a little bit. Yeah. I think we're hitting this point where I usually try to wrap up the show. What um, And I usually ask my guests uh, for the younger listeners that are out there and they're looking for motivation and they're looking uh, to stay in this business or any of these art- artistic businesses, what sort of advice would you have for them? I mean, do you have advice for them on deadlines? Do you have advice for them on inspiration? Any sort of advice that you wish that you got back when you were in London in your twenties?
1: Yeah, well, First on the deadlines, never miss a deadline. Um, that's very important uh, and be polite. And that seems such a simple thing, but like I, that's in my top three rules uh, or maybe the top one rule is be polite and never miss a deadline. Because uh, when you are a nice and professional person to the client, they're gonna come back and use you again. And you want repeat business especially when you get a client that you like working with. Uh, So, yeah, missing a deadline and being good and polite is very, very important. Um, In terms of inspiration, like what we were saying before, give yourself space to soak up inspiration from all kinds of things. Uh, Don't feel bad in a creative job if you have the time to take the day off and go to the movies or to go to an exhibition or to go to the mountains and take a walk in the wilderness, it's not a uh, kind of slack time. It's actually fundamental for your job uh, to do that. Uh, so most definitely uh, give yourself time to get inspired by stuff. And uh, another really important thing is nobody is good straight off. Like sometimes there are people who are good straight off, but they're the exception, not the rule. You know, guys who come straight out of college and start working for major clients and get all the biggest jobs and, uh, world domination. <laughs> it's very, very, very rare. Mm-hmm. Uh, nearly everybody is shit when they start and it's your sort of love and passion for the trade, whatever it might be. Uh, that'll make you eventually good at it and you'll keep improving and you keep learning uh, the more you work and across every walk of life. Practice is what makes you good at something, whether it's playing a musical instrument or drawing pictures for a living. So don't be disheartened at the start when you, when work goes down badly or when people slag it off or you don't think it's as good as you want it to be. You just keep chipping away. You keep practicing and uh, keep improving and also realize that that never stops. You don't all of a sudden reach a level and go, well, I've arrived now. This is as good as I can be. (laughs) You just keep getting better and better and better and better and just go with the flow and try and enjoy it. And for the love of God, when you get paid, get that first paycheck in, put the tax aside don't touch it. Put a little <laughs> bit aside for savings for a rainy day. And go buy yourself something nice with the rest or go on the piss and have beers or whatever it is. But Jesus, be sensible with the money. Don't blow it all. <laughs> and don't spend your tax money because when tax time comes, you don't want a heart attack. Believe me.
0: <laughs> Amen, brother. <laughs>
1: Amen. Amen to that. <laughs>
0: all right. Well, I think that's a great place to end the show. Uh, I've had in a blast having a conversation with you, Matt. And you and I yeah. will work together again, man. I am I very so. happy with the poster work. Um, I like yeah. your style. I like where you come from, man. And some point in time, we will hang yeah. out in the same
1: room and have beers together. Most definitely. Yeah, definitely. And likewise, can't wait to work with you again. Best of luck with Who's There and 12KM and all the other projects because... yeah they're absolutely brilliant really really properly brilliant
0: thank you my friend all right all right well thanks everybody for listening and uh, i'll talk to you next time see you So I hope you guys enjoyed listening to this episode as much as I did recording it, and I hope you have a newfound respect for illustrated movie posters. And honestly, if you love an artist, then support that artist. And like I said before, a lot of these guys are very easily reachable. Um, If you want to know more about Matt Griffin uh, and his work, uh, you can go to two websites, actually. If you go to... uh, Voidonauts, which is the name of his new company. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but it is V-O-I-D-O-N-A-U-T-S dot com. Uh, this is his uh, new company that he's setting up, brand new creative studio that is dedicated to making really cool movie posters and such. Um, and if you want to look at some of his older works, go to Matt Griffin online. So if you go to MattGriffin. Uh, You can see a lot of his really cool stuff. He's animating some of it. Um, I'm a huge fan. And take note, guys. You've been listening to the new stuff from Code Electro right now. This is off of his new album, Triads. Uh, I love him. He's the man. He's one of my favorite artists in the new retro wave scene. And uh, I don't plug him every episode. I need to plug him every episode because I love him so much. He does all the music for our show. Um, So definitely go check out Code Electro, that is E-L-K-T-R-O, Code Electro. Uh, All of his albums are on every outlet, Apple Music, Amazon, Spotify, Um, and I know on his website he's actually selling really cool vinyls and really cool merch. Um, I love him so much, he's a big part of how the show sounds, Um, and this new track pretty fucking cool so uh definitely check them out and uh you know i really appreciate all of your support and i appreciate you guys uh following the show we are now on spotify we are now on almost every podcast network out there so there is no excuse why you can't listen to us so uh we're still on soundcloud we're still on apple uh podcasts and we've added quite a few new ones to the list So definitely subscribe, definitely keep us in mind and follow me at Mike on Instagram or and follow the podcast In Love With The Process P.O.D. on Instagram as well. That is where you can ask questions. That is where you can get uh, answers on the show. So I appreciate you guys listening as always. I cranked this episode out real quick to try to get it out for Halloween today. I hope you appreciate it. I love you guys.